This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. The biotech renaissance brought on by the knowledge of the human genome has enabled drug companies to develop ever more targeted drugs to treat less common diseases. But the enormous development costs of targeted therapies is now distributed across smaller patient populations, leading to higher prices for individuals and their insurance plans. In response to rising prices for smaller patient groups, insurance firms, benefit managers have developed new schemes that either withhold coverage for specialty drugs outright or exclude payment for such therapies from a patient's deductible limit. In response to the resistance of insurance companies to cover specialty therapies, the drug companies themselves have developed programs that offer direct subsidies to patients to defray their drug costs. But patient enthusiasm for such programs soon fade when they discover that such direct drug subsidies are also not applied to a patient's deductible limits, thus effectively sending all drug payment assistance to the pharmacy benefit managers and leaving patients to pay their entire deductible anyway. How can healthcare regulators permit insurance firms to deny coverage for specialty drugs and allow pharmacy benefit managers to expropriate money intended for drug payment assistance while also leaving patients responsible for their entire deductible. My guests today are Pioneer Institute's Director of Life Science Initiatives, Dr. Bill Smith, and Pioneer's Senior Fellow in Life Sciences, Dr. Robert Popovian. Their new white paper entitled, Out-of-Pocket Pirates, Pharmacy Benefit Managers and the Confiscation of -of Out-of-Pocket Assistance Programs describes in detail the way in which so-called accelerator and maximizer programs exploit small, specialty drug patient populations. The paper examines various case studies to illustrate how the refusal to apply drug company payment assistance toward client deductible limits forces patients to either pay their entire annual deductible or forego the use of vital effective therapies entirely. We will discuss how state and federal industry regulators are moving to prohibit such practices and how those purchasing insurance programs for their members or employees can identify and avoid policies that use such schemes. When I return, I'll be joined by Pioneer Institute's healthcare policy experts, Drs. Bill Smith and Robert Popovian. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by Pioneer Institute's Director of Life Science Initiatives, Dr. Bill Smith, and Pioneer Senior Fellow in Life Sciences, Dr. Robert Popovian. Welcome to Hubwonk, Bill and Robert. Thanks for having us, Joe. Thank you. All right. Uh, Well, it's good to have you. And now, Bill, uh, uh, our listeners will know you well. You've been on the podcast many times before. So uh, this is Robert's first time on Hubwonk. I want to give him a chance to let our listeners know a little bit about uh, his background. You guys just came out with a a white paper, uh, very compelling. It's uh, the headline is Out-of-Pocket Pirates, which is quite uh, an assertion. uh, so for the benefit of our listeners, uh, Robert, you have your background is in um, healthcare economics. Share with our listeners, how did you get here? Um, my background is actually in healthcare economics, but specifically in pharmaceutical economics and policy. I'm a uh, pharmacist, a clinical pharmacist with a background in infectious diseases. So I've been involved in this space for the last 30 years, since the mid-90s, looking at healthcare policy and economic issues and how they intersect between one another. Wonderful. So the, you're, you're well qualified to, to speak on this subject, uh, being, uh, being a pharmacist and, and one who studies the system in general. So we're going to go deep on the issue that touches, I really think most of our listeners, uh, we all go for prescriptions and 
uh, perhaps someday we'll all have a, a diagnosis that requires a very expensive uh, therapy. So let's start by defining the actors in, in uh, this, this morality play, if you will, between uh, we've got uh, patients who have a, uh, an illness that requires some sort of uh, drug therapy. We have the pharma companies who uh, some people paint with the black hat, but we, we accept here on our podcast that they're the ones inventing these therapies that uh, we all enjoy and, and keep us healthy. Uh, and then there's the insurance companies, and we'll go a little bit more deeply into these things called pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs. Uh, Bill, you and I have discussed uh, the role of PBMs in the past, the fact that their revenue seems to exceed both the insurance company's revenue and the drug company's revenue by a comfortable margin, which is an interesting phenomenon. So just as a bit of recap for our listeners, Bill, tell our listeners, what are pharmacy benefit managers and how do they fit into this this scheme? Yeah, Joe, quite simply, they're consultants to insurance companies and they help the uh, insurance company structure the drug benefit. So they decide which drugs are going to be made available, which drugs are going to be restricted. And they take in what's controversial is they take in what are called rebates from drug manufacturers. And drug manufacturers pay rebates so that they can get a more preferred status for their drug on a particular formulary. Um, And that's the controversial part. Billions and billions and billions. I think $204 billion in in rebates and fees were paid last year. Um, And the pharmacy benefit managers share most of that with insurance companies. But there's a little bit of opaque about where the money goes. All right. So we talk a lot in economics terms here on the um, policyholders and uh, and we've got PBMs. And in theory, they're working on our behalf to, um, to get the right drugs on the formulary, get us a good price. Um, so what market forces exist now, if, if, they're, if we can call it equilibrium, to ensure that uh, though they're expensive, our insurance company agrees to pay for those drugs. What, why Why do they do it? Is that the goodness of their heart or some market forces that encourage uh, our insurance companies to cover the drugs we need? Robert. Yeah, I, I mean, there are there are market forces that that uh, mitigate towards a um, a quality formulary. So, for example, employers offer healthcare as a benefit to their employees. It's it's like a salary. It's 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 a benefit and. You don't want to offer a crappy benefit. You want to offer a benefit that covers some drugs. Uh, there's also market forces at, uh, at at work in the Part D program where senior citizens get to choose a plan every year. And so they can go and look which plans are covering the drugs they're on and which ones have low co-pays. And then they can walk with their feet to the best plan. So there are market forces mitigating towards um uh, a quality in, in formularies, but there are there are there are headwinds uh, in, in the opposite direction also. Well, I also then I want to talk about those headwinds because in your paper you point to encouraging or I don't know they're encouraging they're discouraging in fact uh, trends in the kinds of diseases that are being treated by these uh, pharma companies. Uh, Robert, I want this question to go to you because you're on the front lines as as, as a pharmacist. How have the drugs that have been treated uh, developed lately? Um, or compare with in the past. In other words, in the past, we've we've gone for the big drugs that affect a large population. Uh, I've noticed, and your paper notes, there we're targeting smaller and smaller populations with drugs with diseases that are rarer and rarer. Share with our listeners what what's going on. Why why are we moving from the drugs for big big diseases to smaller diseases? Yeah, uh, in the 90s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, drugs that were being developed and marketed was meant for millions of people because they were treating chronic diseases like hypertension and lipid disorder and antidepressants and everything else that affects many people. 
since the sequencing of the genome, especially in the oncology space, uh, a lot of the therapies have become very personalized or precision type medicines. And therefore, they're being developed for not millions of people, but for perhaps you specifically that has the disease. So the number of people being impacted by these developments has shrunk significantly. But the important part to, for people to know that the cost of developing these medicines and inventing them and bringing them to the market has stayed the same. So it's a math issue for a lot of the pricing that people discuss. Uh, it's a numerator denominator where we used to have a huge denominator of people that we can divide it into the, the dollar amount spent and the cost and everything else that requires. Now we have a much smaller denominator. So what happens is that the per average cost for patient has increased incrementally, has increased significantly. Wonderful. I, I love that answer. When we're talking basic math, we've got uh, when you have to divide the cost of development amongst millions of people, it's relatively low cost. And as the number of people you're treating gets smaller, given that the development costs don't get smaller, uh, you've got to divide it uh, uh, around fewer people. So that, that makes sense. Uh, how have insurance companies then adapted to this idea that the drug that's being uh, offered is because of the development cost uh, substantially higher than perhaps in the past? Uh, I'll, I'll throw that one to you, Bill. Yeah. So, Joe, in the past, you know, if there was a drug out there like Lipitor, the popular lipid lowering drug, chances are as an employer, you had hundreds, if not thousands of employees taking that drug. And so you wanted to keep that on the formulary. But now we have these medicines that are that are for rare diseases or for smaller populations. And an employer might might only have three or four employees on a particular drug. And so it's easier, I, in my mind, it's easier for the employer to say, no, we're not going to cover this expensive drug. And, and these drugs are, are expensive. Um, you know, the average oncology drug now is $250,000. The average rare disease drug or orphan drug is, is $300,000. So there are significant incentives for employers not to, to pay for these drugs. And they're increasingly turning to the insurance companies and the PBMs and saying, we don't want to pay for this. We don't want to cover it. So, so forgive me, I'm going to ask this to, to Robert. Um, I buy insurance. I don't know what I'm going to get, right? That's the whole idea of insurance. You don't know what's in store. So you buy the, and you just, I guess, hope and pray that the disease you get is one that everybody else gets and not one of these smaller diseases that's very costly. Aren't you kind of, if, you, if you're saying, uh, you know, heads I win, tails you lose kind of thing, uh, aren't, aren't you kind of defeating the purpose of having insurance if, if, if you might run across a disease that they won't cover? You're absolutely right, Joe. So the whole premise of insurance is being violated here because what we're doing in the pharmaceutical market, unlike the other parts of the healthcare system, by the way, because insurance does work really well in the medical services and hospitalizations and so on, we're exposing patients who have needs for, uh, there are a small number of patients who have needs for very expensive therapies to very expensive out-of-pocket costs. So it's, it's in other words, what the, PBMs and the insurers do is cover everything cheap that is available for millions of people and then don't cover anything that is very expensive and is used by very few people. And that's the premise of insurance, right? It's to predict the unpredictable. And they're violating the whole premise of insurance 101. Well, lest our listeners think that these are extremely rare diseases, share with our listeners some of the, the kind of treatments. Uh, you know, when I was reading your paper, I was imagining, you know, some jungle you know, 
rare disease, but rather it's more specific subsets of very common diseases. Share with our listeners how, how what these rare diseases sound like or look like. What, what's an example of these kinds of diseases? Uh, again, I'll throw that to you, Robert, because you're you're in the front line prescribing the, the drugs. So, so what has happened over time in the last maybe 20 years is that, as I said, with the sequencing of the genome, especially in the oncology space, we know more about specific therapies so instead of where we used to have a shotgun approach, when somebody had breast cancer and we would develop a drug that would be targeted towards breast cancer, but it would not be very specific and it would have a lot of side effects and it would be not as effective. Now we know that if we create these targeted therapies, one, the efficacy would be superior because we know with true gene mutation and things like that, that that works. And second, the side effect profiles are much better. So, so, Joe, basically, you know how you refer to uh, the drugs that are jungle fever as being rare therapies. We're not talking about that. We're talking about common disease areas that now have become very targeted because of our ability to be able to develop drugs with, through precision medicine for that specific population. So for breast cancer or lung cancer or even other types of diseases other than oncology, like migraines and things, we have therapies that specifically target the population and they're far more effective, as I mentioned, and probably with less side effects. Now, this is a question I, I want to ask, though. It occurs to me when we're talking about these large numbers for these therapies. I would imagine drug companies who develop these therapies um, want to ensure people are able to use them. Uh, I read in your paper something brand new I'd never heard of, that drug companies actually have funds to help people who can't afford afford their drugs. Again, these are large costs. Uh, Bill, I'm going to direct this to you. You sort of understand the ins and outs of the insurance companies. What are insurance companies doing to help patients afford their drugs? Yeah, so this is this has been a, a cat and mouse game that's been going on between the PBMs and the uh, the drug manufacturers. Um, you know, as these specialty medicines have come on, as these precision medicines have come on and their costs have risen, what insurers and PBMs have done is they've reacted by raising out-of-pocket costs. Um, and we know, we know, and not to be cynical, but we know that when out-of-pocket costs rise above $250, the majority of people abandon their prescriptions at the pharmacy counter. So the PBM saves a lot of money by raising out-of-pocket costs. The manufacturers in response, as part of this cat and mouse game, have offered financial assistance to patients to help them meet their co-pays and deductibles and out-of-pocket costs. So, you know, if a patient in, a, in a, the average patient in a silver plan under the ACA might have a $6,400 out-of-pocket maximum cost. And, you know, a, 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 a drug manufacturer could offer $20,000 in assistance and offset that cost and boom, the patient's out-of-pocket maximum is met by the, the drug company's financial assistance, and then the insurance kicks in for the patient so the patient doesn't have to pay anything out-of-pocket. Um, yeah, but, but Bill, that's that sounds good to me, right? That sounds like, okay, everybody wants the patient healthy. So the PBMs raise the, uh, the, the out-of-pocket, um, perhaps just discourages use, but uh, perhaps not, perhaps just to limit their own costs. The drug company counters with offering some rebate there or some financial assistance. Isn't this win-win? I mean, why why wouldn't everybody be thrilled with this uh, setup? Well, because the insurers want, they want patients to pay money out of pocket. They want, they want the manufacturer assistance and they want patients to pay out of pocket. That drives their profits even higher. So what they've been putting these, what we wrote about in the paper is they've been putting these programs in place called accumulators and maximizers where they pocket, the PBM pockets the financial assistance from the drug company and then turns around and says to the patient, 
No, you still have to pay your out-of-pocket maximum. Okay, hold on. We, I, we've set the stage now. We're, we, we've got all the background. Uh, Bill, you want to add something to that? Because I do want to, uh, for our listeners' benefit, uh, drill down and, and talk about these concepts of, of, first, accumulators, what are they and how they might work. Um, I'm, I'm suspecting that, Robert, that's what you were about to describe or uh, uh, explain. I was just going to add to what Bill says. So the, the motives of the PBMs and the insurers is even more cynical because their whole premise is that way we're going to we're going to increase out-of-pocket costs. We're go- there's going to be this patient assistance, and then we're going to restrict the use of these patient assistance. We're going to sort of steal that, right? But the premise for them is that the patient assistance increases or encourages the use of brand name medicines. But their their premise is false because 99.9% of this patient assistance goes to brand for brand name drugs that have, don't have a generic or a biosimilar alternative. And generally speaking, it's for disease areas that nobody's going to take these drugs unless they absolutely need these drugs. I don't know about you and me, but we're not going to our physician and getting prescribed a lung cancer drug unless we have lung cancer that actually will be benefiting from this. So their whole premise of restricting these to these programs is false. And they've fed this to the policymakers and patients and employers for many years that this encourages use of brand name drugs, which is completely irrelevant. So, you know, in, in economics terms, uh, they try to use price signals to sort of uh, discourage usage, right? So, uh, mm-hmm. but what we're going to talk about the, the specific way they do this, as you say, they're interested both in the money that comes from the patient and the money that's being uh, given by the drug company. So, um, so let's go deeper. You talk about this concept of an accumulator. So in, in my view, we've got a patient who has a high deductible, uh, they need a drug that's very expensive, as you say, indispensable. There's no generic equivalent, and it's for a you know a terrible disease, one that you know uh, justifies a quarter million dollar uh, uh, prescription or something like that. Um, how how does it all work? We, I, I'm going to, to get the prescription, but the drug company is going to help me buy that. It sounds to me that if the drug company covers my prescription, I'm all set. I don't care what the PBM has to say. Explain to me where the problem is there. Uh, I'll I'll throw that one over to Bill. Yeah, so basically what happens under an accumulated program, Joe, is let's say a patient is prescribed a $100,000 cancer drug, um, and the drug company offers $25,000 in assistance, but the $25,000 won't pay for the whole $100,000. So the 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 patient assistance program might pay for a couple months of the drug cover cover, but the, then what the insurance company does after that patient assistance runs out, the insurance company says, "Okay, patient, it's time for you to start paying your out of pocket costs." So in month three or four under these programs, suddenly the patient is faced with a gigantic, maybe a six thousand dollar out of pocket cost for their drug. Uh, and sometimes this is unsupportable. They, patients can't afford it. Um, and that's the way an accumulator program works. There's This is like a cliff that you fall off when the patient assistance money from the uh, drug company runs out. You fall off a cliff and you're you're faced with severe out-of-pocket costs. So, um, so to be clear, the assistance that I get from the drug company doesn't count towards my PBM um, deductible. In other words, they're getting their money. But because it's coming from the drug company and not from me, 
they want the drug company's money. And then when that runs out, they want my money. So precisely. I let, let me let me make a simplistic analogy, Joe. Imagine a single mom, $1,500 worth of rent every month. She's struggling to pay the rent and she learns a construction company that wants to keep the housing market robust will offer a voucher for $500. So she applies and she gets the voucher and she goes to the landlord at the first of the month. She gives him the $500 voucher and the landlord says, oh, thank you. And he puts it in his pocket and says, you still owe $1,500. That's what's essentially going on with these programs. Well, this, this sounds uh, pretty outrageous. Uh, and again, because as we've already identified it earlier in the show, it affects a smaller population. So these surprises are happening not to everyone, but to uh, those people who are unfortunate enough to have a, one of these expensive diseases. What has been the response from the public? I would imagine we'd read more about this this outrage, this idea, this cliff that once the, the drug company's assistance ends, we're at square one as if nothing has been paid to the PBM. What has been the uh, response um, when people figure out this cliff exists? So I think the response has been negative, and that's why they uh, sort of called out the PBMs and the insurers for doing this accumulated program. So what the insurers and PBMs have done is pivot to another different program, which is called Maximizer and alternative funding programs, which is a little bit different than the accumulator, what Bill explained. With the Maximizer program, it's the name Maximizer. So what the PBM does is looks at the value of the patient assistance and says to you, Joe, your out-of-pocket cost is what the value of that patient assistance is. So if the patient assistance program is $20,000, that's what your value is for out-of-pocket costs. So instead of you going through this cliff, we're going to take that 20000 divided by 12, and every month we're going to draw down on that patient assistance as your out-of-pocket cost requirement. However, it still doesn't apply to the deductibles and to the maximum out-of-pocket cost liability, so you're still on the hook no matter what. And then there's this whole premise of alternative funding programs, which is attached to the maximizers, which requires these third parties besides the PBMs and insurers that get engaged. And we can talk about that because it's more detailed than the maximizer program by itself is. So, so again, uh, it's just a slightly different structure than the accumulator. What a maximizer does is start sort of backwards and says, okay, this is how much money the drug company is going to give you, Mr. Patient. And rather than use uh, you know, a third of it in the first three months and, and it's, it's all gone and there's a cliff, they divide by 12 and credit that each of the 12 and perhaps, you know, take that and so as they get the maximum um, uh, benefit. But again, because this also doesn't apply to their deductible, if they have any other th therapy, any other treatment, they, again, they're back to square one, right? They they still, this, the, the, the exactly. patient still pays 100% of their maximum uh, deductible, even though they're getting $20,000, $50,000 from a drug company they're still paying. So absolutely again, correct, Joe. And and they what it does is eliminate the the copay requirement for that particular drug and that particular drug only. So if the patient ha has to go to the hospital and get an MRI, they might be paying cash for it out of pocket because it the maximizer does not eliminate their deductible and their out of pocket maximums. So uh, Robert, you you know we you agreed with me when you said this seems to violate the very principle of of insurance. Uh, we know that insurance companies are highly regulated, uh, and it seems like this is sort of a, like a, a three-card Monty card trick or something that the, the patient always loses if, if they have an expensive therapy and they need anything else besides that expensive therapy. Um, right. It gets even worse. 
What? Yo, it, it gets even worse with these alternative explain. funding programs. Right. Explain. I want to go deeper on this alternate um, funding sources because there's something even even more dastardly than the PB, PBMs sort of sitting just beside them. Uh, again, I'll, I'll play the, um, the the sample patient. I go to uh, the PBM and say, I've got this disease. It's very expensive. I need the drug. Uh, and they say, you know, okay, we're going to try to get you into this maximizer program or something like that. Um, describe how that evolution happens. I, start with, I show up to the pharmacy needing, you know, a hundred thousand dollar drug. So let me actually step back before you go to the pharmacy. So the PBM comes in with a third party, it's completely different company to your employer and says, Hey, Joe's employer. You no longer have to cover specialty medicines as part of your benefit design. You're off the hook as an employer. So if Joe needs a specialty drug that you're no longer covering on your benefit design, we as the company, as the PBM, will encourage you to use this third party that is sitting next to me to go hunt for these uh, patient assistance programs. And that's what happens. So in other words, this alternative funding program, which is attached to the maximizers, these organizations, PBMs going with these third parties because they can't do it themselves, right? Because if they go and tell an employer, don't cover specialty medicines as part of your benefit design, they're technically violating their contracts with the pharma companies because the whole thing with pharma companies is that they have to encourage or cover these drugs. So these third parties like Save On SP, which is in litigation now with Johnson & Johnson, sit in the room with the PBMs and the PBMs say, hey, look, let me introduce you to this third party and they will take care of everything. And these third parties go and hunt for these patient assistance programs. And then whatever they collect from these patient assistance programs, they pocket about 25 to 30% of it as profit. And then that becomes the out-of-pocket cost for the patient. But Joe, what happens if there is no patient assistance program? You know? Because you no longer are covering these as part of your benefit design, the patient's on the hook. And another thing that happens is that really require you to go through their PBM-owned specialty pharmacy for you to be able to do these programs. So that's another thing that happens is that the way that they me mechanize this thing is that you have to go to the pharmacy, you have to sign up with these uh, PBM-owned pharmacy programs, and then these third parties step in and sort of like, the, do the initiative. Well, as tragic as it sounds to me, if, if someone w w doesn't have a, a, a payment assistance program from the drug company, if it's not covered, you can't maximize because there's nothing to maximize. You've got nothing. That's bad. But to me, I'm thinking about the secondary effect uh, on the drug companies themselves. Bill, I'd like you to answer this question. If I've now suddenly got these uh, specialty firms that do nothing but try to find maximizers, if you will, try to find benefits that are coming from the drug companies and opt, you know, take as much as I can from those drug companies that were really intended to benefit patients, but instead just benefit the PBM. Uh, you know, aren't, aren't the drug companies themselves now, you know, sort of uh, being disincentivized or essentially having their pockets picked by these PBMs? You, you created specialists in how to extract as much money as possible out of them. Isn't that going to put those programs themselves in danger and essentially, you know, the people they're hoping to help you know, ultimately the, the money might dry up and blow away. Absolutely. I, I'm not I'm not advocating this, but the economics of these this situation 
uh, would point to drug companies scaling back dramatically the, the amount of patient assistance that's available. And we've already seen companies do that. Vertex has already scaled back from $100,000 to $20,000 to their patient assistance program for, for uh, cystic fibrosis drugs. Because uh, it, it just does not make sense. If if a patient, for example, in a ACA silver plan has an out-of-pocket maximum of $6,400, it makes no sense to make $25,000 in a financial assistance available to that patient because the PBM is just stealing it. What What the companies could do is they could say, you know what, we'll give you $6,400 if that's your out-of-pocket maximum. We'll cover your out-of-pocket costs, but we're not giving you more than that. And I think that's the inevitable result of of some of these programs if they don't they don't they're not legislated out of existence. So okay, so we're getting sort of the the crux of the problem here is that you, in your paper you go through quite a few scenarios and maybe we share one or two, but in every case we run the simulation and at the end of the year the patient pays a hundred percent of their out of pocket costs despite any effort by the drug company. Um, so we're going to sort of go from sort of identifying the problem to saying okay. If no matter what the disease treatment, um, if the you're maximizing, you're essentially putting it to the patient to maximize their out-of-pocket, what can be done uh, or what has been done? We've got 50 states each with some control here, or even at the federal level, what has been done or what can be done to help patients who might find themselves in this situation where no matter what, for the rest of their life, perhaps, they'll be paying a high out-of-pocket cost for expensive drug. Uh, I'll, I'll go to you, Robert, um, first pass so, on. So legislatively, there's activity that's been going on both on the state level primarily and now on the federal level. On the state level, by end of last year, 16 states had passed legislation to say that any type of support, no matter whether it comes from your Uncle Charlie or from the pharma company, has to apply to the patient's deductible or maximum out-of-pocket cost liability. So state laws have been enacted in 16 states to do that. Uh, multiple other states this year have introduced legislation. I think a couple of them have already passed, but we'll have to wait until the end of the year to have the final tally of the states that are protecting patients. But Joe, as you know, state laws only regulate state-regulated plans. Uh, they don't regulate ERISA plans or multi-cross-state plans. So federal legislation is required there was a bill in the last Congress that would have done the same thing that the states are trying to do. There's a legislation again in this Congress that has been introduced as a bipartisan legislation that will do that same thing that effectively allows any any kind of support to apply to the patient's out-of-pocket cost. Unfortunately, it's only for ACA-regulated plans because the federal government cannot mandate this for the employers or the private sector. And in addition, you know, we'll see what happens because the last two administrations, both the Trump and the Biden administration, have taken a pass on this. They've basically said, oh, yeah, the plans can do this and CMS has not regulated this thing. So we'll see what happens on the federal level. But that's the activity right now. But it's also very telling, Joe, that the Office of Personnel Management, which handles all the benefits for federal employees, has told the plans, don't even think about implementing a maximizer program. We know that raises out-of-pocket costs for uh, our federal employees, and we're not going to support it. So we've got someone big enough to advocate for federal employees, but at the local level, uh, at state level, there's nobody that big and that powerful. So they they sort of, it's, it's pseudo-regulation. It's pseudo, uh, you know, sort of they, they, because they have muscle, they can, you know, impose standards that we can't enjoy because we don't have, you know, 
Office of Personnel Management for ourselves. So, uh, Bill, I'll direct this then to you. Again, we're a Boston-based think tank. Where is Massachusetts on this continuum between, let's say, um, uh, you know, the, look, we're, we're, we love markets, we love uh, free markets, and we, we don't like regulation in general. But this sounds like a, a, a call to advocate for uh, the small guy. In other words, I, I don't know if we would simply ban accumulators or maximize. I don't like that word. But, it, but as you say, effectively require every dollar, whether you say it's from your uncle or from your drug company, be accredited towards your, your deductible. What's going on here in Massachusetts? In there, there's a Massachusetts bill that would do that. That would It copies the other 17 states that have passed this legislation. And they had a hearing in the uh, uh, in a joint committee uh, maybe two weeks ago. And I, I don't know whether it's moving or not. I can't prognosticate on it. Uh, but uh, after this podcast, I'm going to go find out what happened with that hearing and where that whether that bill is moving. Um, but a lot of states are considering these bills. Um, uh, very many states. If I may, uh, you know, many of our listeners are uh, business owners who uh, have purchased plans for them, their employees. They love their employees. They want them to be well served. This sounds like a. Uh, 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 perhaps knowingly or unknowingly, a way that they they may utterly disappoint their employees with a, a plan that you know exempts important medicine. How would employers or people who choose uh, plans know whether their plan has this specialty carve out that that may you know cause one of their employees to be go broke? Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll throw that to you, uh, to uh, Robert, please. So Joe, uh, honestly, I work. Uh, a lot with small employers and sometimes they don't even know that they've signed up to this these type of programs after it becomes apparent to them after they have patients complaining about hey my specialty drug is no longer covered or i'm getting this patient assistance but it's not applying to my deductible so first of all i don't think the brokers who are who are the agents for pharmacy benefit management companies and insurers and they're conflicted really disclose to this, especially the small employers, what is going on and what kind of benefit they're purchasing for their patients. Because if they knew that, look, I'm not going, no longer going to cover specialty medicines, a lot of employers will hesitate on that because even though it's a small number of patients, those patients are really sick and they need these drugs. So the first and foremost, I think there has to be a requirement of these insurers and PBMs and their brokers to disclose their conflict of interest and also let people know that what kind of benefit design, because a lot of employers just don't have the bandwidth to be able to read through 70, 80 pages of documents versus the brokers know these things and they don't disclose them to these employers. So your solution, again, it's a, it's a market one, is that we have information asymmetry here. We've got you know, some opacity in the, in the process. At least if you're going, if you're planning on... Uh, Sticking it to the guy with the rare disease, at least disclose it when when the employer yeah. goes to purchase. Okay, we're running out of time. This is a huge topic. And it's very complex, and I hope our listeners have been able to hang on and and, and understand this. I'd love them to be able to uh, learn more about this. Uh, perhaps we've piqued their interest and they, they want to learn more. Um, where can they find your most recent paper? The 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 I, I have the title at the top of the show. The um, uh, out of pocket pirates, I think, was the name. Yes. Uh, where can they find uh, your research? A very good paper, I think, thirty eight pages long, but lots of information in there. Where can they find that? If you just googled Pioneer Institute and out of pocket pirates, or Pioneer Institute and maximizers, the paper would come up. In, indeed, and um, 
where can uh, we uh, learn more about your work? I, Robert, it sounds like you are a professional adv advocate for patients or someone who's uh, sort of following it both at states, plural and federal level. Where can we learn more about your work and your advocacy? Well, well, Bill and I do a lot of work and we're gonna publish hopefully an op-ed that we're drafting right now on this topic, but I have my own Twitter feed, Popovian Farm D. And as well as I have a podcast that is called Healthcare Matters, and we sort of like bring this down to the patient level, try to explain to the patients. You know, it's more patient focused and consumer focused. I'm an advocate. I think podcasts that go a long way to helping people understand things that few of us enjoy reading white papers. So uh, this yeah. is a, a, an easier way to integrate the information. Well, I appreciate your time, both of you uh, joining me on this rather complex topic, but that you know, affects people in a very, very real way. Families, I'm sure, individuals with these unfortunate diseases uh, will, will suffer already. We don't want them to suffer more with these uh, b bizarre uh, tricks, I'll call them, uh, these accumulators and maximizers. So thank you very much, uh, Bill and Robert. Thanks for being on Hubwong. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. This has been another episode of Hubwong. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support the podcast and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. It would make it easier for others to find Hubwonk if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or suggestions or comments for me about future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.